Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels, with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. 
and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about one hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Revelation chapters 15 and 16. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bible to those two chapters, if you would. Chapters 15 and 16 in the book of Revelation, we're going to be spending uh, some time in there this morning, uh, continuing in our series, and in a message I've entitled, He Judges. And this is one of those powerful turns in the Revelation that allows us to see what God is doing. Uh, I want to remind you that this, this letter was given to the early churches to allow us to hold on to unshakable hope in the midst of suffering. When there's reason and for discouragement and there's reasons to quit and there's reasons to give up, in all of those moments, the revelation is reminding us that there's something to hold on to even when the world offers us nothing. How do we hold on to holiness in the midst of a world of seduction? How do we refute deception in the church and false teaching? How do we fuel mission among believers? And if I can state it more clearly, what I'd like to tell you in the revelation of Jesus, this revelation was not to give us reassurance that we're enough, that we're strong enough, that we're, we're big enough. It actually shows us that Jesus is enough. And if we're holding on to ourselves or our own pride or our own ability, we're missing the point. We need to hold on only to Jesus and what he's offering us because in the midst of all of it, he is in control. I'd like to do a running review if we can. Uh, to, to help you see why we get to these chapters and what turn is made in the book. The first chapter is a glorified vision of Jesus. His voice is speaking. He's telling us where this comes from and who it's for. In chapters two and three, uh, he gives messages to the church that he knows what's going on. He, he warns when there's area of warning, he encourages, he promises, and he delivers. And he's speaking to his church. Remember, it, it ends with, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hear my voice and open, I will come in and I will be in fellowship with you. And he was talking to believers to hold on and to trust me and I'll work in this with you. In chapters four and five, we got a vision of the throne room of heaven. And we were reassured that God is in control that there is nothing that surprises him, catches him off guard. There's nothing he's not greater than. And there stands Jesus right next to the Father, the crucified lamb standing there on our behalf. And chapters six through 11, those chapters are the beginning of the judgment of God on the earth. And they showed up in the broken seals and the trumpets. And how in those moments, God was calling a people to repentance. He's calling them back to himself. Last week, we looked at chapters 12 and 13. And we were revisiting the entire meta-narrative of the scripture that God had promised to defeat Satan with a child that would come and overthrow the kingdom and reestablish God's kingdom. And in that midst, we know that Satan, the serpent, went after the, the tribe of people that would bring Jesus to life. And then it went after Jesus. And then it goes after the followers of Jesus. And this battle continues on even to this day. And we're a part of that great battle. And in the midst of all of this, we start over today in chapters 15 and 16 with seven bowls of wrath. Now, in the Old Testament, the image was that the wrath of God was contained in a bowl or a cup. 
and it would be poured out on people or they would be forced to drink the wrath of God because of what they have done. You might even remember Jesus used this imagery when the disciples came to him in a very unfortunate conversation. They decided right before he was to die for us that they would ask, could they be at his right or left hand in the kingdom of God when the day came? And Jesus asked them a very pointed question. Can you drink of the cup I drink from? And they foolishly responded, we can. And Jesus knew that they would not be required to. He would drink of that cup, that he would take on the wrath of God on sinners through his blood and through his sacrifice on the cross. Here's what I want you to see. You probably have noticed things are ramping up. They're uh, intensifying. That what is happening in the earth with God's judgment is increasing in power and drama. Remember, when the seals were broken, a fourth of the earth was affected. When the trumpets were sounded, a third of the earth was affected. And now the bowls are poured out and all of the earth is affected. God is moving toward complete, final, and ultimate judgment. This intensification gives us a vision of what God is doing and how God is going to go about doing it. And I also want to remind you that they should remind you of the plagues of Egypt, because this is the imagery that the people in John's day were picking up on, that God is freeing his people in the same way he freed the Israelites from the the enslavement in Egypt. And God is going to free those in his world that trust him in the same manner. And then those who aren't are going to face the judgment and face the punishment. If you just want to turn in your journals or your Bibles over to Revelation 16, we're not going to go through the verses quite yet, but I want to give you an overview of this chapter to help explain where we're going in this message. You're going to see in chapter 16 that the seven bowls are poured out. And the seventh bowl has begun to be poured out and it will be in fruition through the rest of the book. But in these particular first four plagues, verses one through nine, I want you to notice what's taking place. The wrath of God, the judgment of God on the earth comes from the earth first. Notice it's the earth, the sea, the rivers, and the sun pass judgment on the image bearers of God who are not bearing his image. Remember when God created Adam and Eve, he told them over creation, I want you to have dominion over creation. I want you to set things in order. I want you to serve this world and use what I've given you and be a part of me in in dominating and, and, and controlling this world and using it for its purposes. And the earth rebels against those as image bearers who do not carry out their role. And then you get to verses 10 through 21 and the final three plagues are pretty dramatic. In the fifth plague, It's a direct attack on the imperial system that's operating this world. That which has turned people into commodities. That which deems one person is better than another because of their money or their appeal or their appearance and whatever caste system is formed, that there is a judgment on those things that have taken away the value and dignity of each and every human being. And then the sixth bowl is poured out and something, I learned something and I'm not willing to die over it, but I am willing to fight over it, okay? Here's what I want you to see. When the sixth bowl is poured out, something fascinating happens. It says the rivers are dried up and it prepares a kind of exodus to this great battle of Armageddon. But if you see something biblically, I see it here. In, when God was delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, he crossed them through the Red Sea. Remember, the waters were parted. Charlton Heston led everybody. They got over on dry ground. They got to the other side. The water closed. The horses drowned. The chariots were sunk. And there was a great celebration on the other side. And then when Joshua led the people into the promised land, God parted the Jordan River. The 
priest walked in with the Ark of the Covenant and as they stepped in the water, the water began to recede and then they, they went across on dry land. They took stones from the waterbed or from the riverbed and they put them on the dry ground and they created a monument there that they would always remember the passing. It seems like in the Old Testament, anytime the waters were parted, God delivered his people to the other side. But in Revelation, when the sixth bowl is poured out, the waters are dried up and it says the kings that have associated with the beast and the dragon they cross over. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but what I kind of see is when the rivers are parted, God's on the other side going, you want a piece of me? I've made it easy. Come get me. And the kings of the world who are rebelling against God approach God in this manner. And that's the great battle of Armageddon. For 11 years, I've been saying this on this stage, not because I'm smart, because I want you to understand the story of scripture. There is no battle at Armageddon. There's a gathering of people who stand before God in defiance. They lose every single time. God's not at risk. God's not under threat. There is no battle. They gather and it is over. Remember our motto, when Jesus shows up, Satan will shut up. He does every single time and he does in this moment. And then the seventh bowl, it is cast into the air which is an interesting image of the demons and the spiritual warfare, this cosmic battle we talked about last week. The final judgment of God is on that. And all of those who have sided with the serpent and his plan to destroy God's plan. All of this coming together in this powerful, powerful moment that one day, completely and fully, the wrath of God will be displayed. That's why I've entitled this message, He Judges. And when we see this image over and over, it startled me as a 14-year-old. I read about people hiding in caves, wanting the mountains to collapse on them rather than face God. People tormented by killer locusts, by horses with fire coming from their mouths and scorpion tails. I'll pass. That weirded me out big time. That people punished with fire and sulfur and smoke would rise from their pain. And now 100-pound hailstones falling from the sky and crushing people. And as a 14-year-old not understanding what was taking place here, I kept thinking, God's just gonna get so mad at all of us that he's just gonna punish the earth before he sorts us out. And I'm grateful that's not true. That those that are covered in the blood of Christ are protected from these things. And those that are loyal to the serpent will suffer what the serpent suffers. Remember, God punishes sin and God judges those who ally themselves with sin. And you have this powerful image and then we get to chapter 15. And I often don't, didn't know what to do with chapter 15. Let me explain why. In chapter 15, God's judgment has come on earth in a more powerful, intensifying way. And the believers in Jesus, God's chosen church, is celebrating. I've shared this before, and I apologize if it's an old story, but it makes, when I think of judgment, I think of this. My mom and dad were very patient people. My dad didn't play, though. When Dale told you to knock it off, he meant knock it off. And he would give warning. And he would say regularly, like, boys, don't make me get up. Now, I had one brother who never quite understood what that meant. Steve, who was close to an angel, got it. I was a perfect child. I got it. My second oldest brother didn't get it. And we knew this reality. Dad would warn you. And he would say, if you don't knock it off, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do this. Now, for the record, because my dad listens, he did not beat us. We got spanked when we deserved it. We got punished when we deserved it. My father was not cruel, but my dad didn't play. And we learned something. When Dale Christian put his hands on the chairs, on the arm of the chairs, there was no more repentance available to you. <laughs> when Dale got up, you got hurt. This is how it was. 
And now I think that he was really, he gave us grace and mercy because he was too lazy to get out of the chair. But when he was up, he had four boys and there was a price to be paid. And so because of this, there's a moment when we get to Revelation 15 that God starts to get out of his chair. He is bringing his full judgment on sin and those that have aligned themselves with the serpent. And he's getting up. And in the strangest thing in Revelation 15, the believers begin to sing a song. Now, as much as I liked when my brothers got in trouble, when dad started out of the chair, I never once thought, yeah. I was like, why don't you listen? He told you to stop. But once dad was up, someone was getting punished. And in this moment, I've struggled in the past with Revelation 15, and then you begin to see something. And here's what I want you to know. If you hear nothing else I say the rest of the morning, I want you to hear this. When God judges, he judges from his character and not from his anger. When God judges, he judges from his character, and I'll explain that, but not from his anger, which is the misunderstanding of the judgment of God, in my mind, in today's culture. So how can the church sing praises? Look at chapter 15, verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, just and true are your ways. Most of the scholarship I read says that Revelation 15 is echoing Moses' song when they crossed through the Red Sea and landed on the other side and God delivered them through the Red Sea. That Moses sang a song of God's deliverance and God's faithfulness. And many people say Revelation 15 is the same thing. But look in chapter 16 with me at verses 5 and verse 7. Just are you, O Holy One, for you brought these judgments. Verse 7. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. How are we supposed to worship? How do we honestly, if we're a people of love and grace and mercy, how do we worship God in the moment that he gets out of the chair and starts to bring the hammer? It seems awkward, doesn't it? Well, here's what our world's asking us. How do we worship a God of wrath? Because that's the word. Soft sell it all you want. The biblical word is wrath. How do we worship a God of wrath? Where's the God of love? Hey, you've heard the question posed. If not directly, you've heard it inferred in conversations. How can a God of love send people to hell? How can a God of love dismiss people? If he loves everyone, how can he punish anyone? This is challenging in our culture today. How are you and I going to worship a God when we know that if he keeps his word, if he stays true to his character, multitude of people, people you know and love are going to face the punishment of hell and the wrath of God if they don't repent. How do we worship in the midst of that? How do we not just break out in tears? Because chapters 15 and 16 show us that the judgment of God comes from his character. And his character requires that sin, which has destroyed and damaged, cannot be ignored, cannot be dismissed, cannot be treat, treated like it didn't happen. And listen carefully, church. Before we think about those people, please understand this truth. Every single person hearing my voice in this room and watching online this morning, every single person who will hear my voice in any recollection of this sermon must understand this. We are all deserving of God's judgment. There is not an innocent, good person, starting with me, who could ever stand before God and think that his judgment would leave us unscathed. God's not a liar. God does not pretend. God is truth all the time. 
and we are all worthy of his judgment. And if we escape his judgment by the blood of the lamb, it has nothing to do with our value. It has nothing to do with our accomplishments. It has nothing to do with our goodness. It only has to do with the revealed Jesus. So when we start this process of thinking through how do we worship a God of wrath, I want to give you some things you can learn in these two chapters. Let's begin with this. Don't sit in judgment on God's judgment. First step for all of us, God's judgment is true. In fact, if I could say this another way, respect how long-suffering and patient God has been. God has every moral right, and it would be just if at our first rebellion of God, he removed us. But who would be left? The earth would be empty. There'd be no human beings except the innocent child who has yet not understood right from wrong. But deep inside, there'd be nothing but babies running around this place. If we dismiss the long-suffering patience of God, we will sit in judgment on the judgment of God. And then I want you to notice something. In the seals and in the trumpets, you might remember when you've read it, or you can look back and see it for yourself. Between the sixth and seventh seal and the sixth and seventh trumpet, there is a pause, there is a delay, there is a break. At one moment, there's 30 minutes of silence before the, the presence of God. There's this, this long extended period where God's pausing. When the bowls are poured out, there is no pause between the sixth and seventh bowl. The time for repentance is over. God's patience has run out. He has given everyone the opportunity. Because even Peter tells us that God is not slow. God is patiently hoping that all will turn and accept his gift of mercy and love. In fact, in chapter six, 16, verse 17, it says, it is done. In other words, the time has come for the full judgment of God to be delivered. And there stands before God those who would rather go down with the monster than suffer with the lamb. And in this moment, God comes. And he whistles everybody out of the pool. And we all got to stand before God to answer for what we've chosen. A life that received his mercy or a life that stood on its own merit. So the revelation of God coming from his character, let's see where that comes from. The first point is that God is in control. This is one of the things you should see so far in the first 16 chapters of the Revelation. God is in control. Theologians would say God is sovereign. That means there is no one above him. There is no one who controls him. There is no one who coerces him. God is in control of all of it. We have learned over and over in this book. God is in control of everything and nothing happens that alters his control. He is sovereign over the past, the present, and the future over the sun, moon, stars, skies, and seas, over every animal, every man, every woman, every child. He is sovereign over Satan, the dragon, the beast, and every demonic spirit. He is in control of those that are persecuted and those that do the persecuting. He is sovereign over suffering and he is sovereign over death. From beginning to end, God is in control. That's why he's called God the Almighty. And so when God judges, He judges from a sense of knowing exactly what's going on and being in control over all. God is also feared by all. This is that moment where I want you to think about the goodness of God and the character of God is that the reason everyone fears God is not because God is a tyrant. You know, I never saw my dad jump out of the chair without warning. I never saw my dad punish any of us without explaining to us the consequences of continuing to do what we were doing. And no one will ever stand before the judgment of God and feel shocked and surprised that they're sinners. No one will stand before God and say, I never rebelled. I didn't understand. 
Each one of us knows in our soul that we have chosen selfishness over love and courtesy. Look at Revelation 15, verses three and four. O king of the nations, who will not fear you, O Lord? Fear is to stand before God knowing he knows. Understanding that when God calls us sinners and God shows us the error of our ways, that none of us will say, "Huh, uh all of us will go, I did. And I did it on purpose. If you eliminated all the things you accidentally did wrong, isn't the list still long enough for all the things you intentionally did wrong? In the midst of all this, we stand before a God and he will not, we will not fool God in any manner and God will speak truth. Psalm 86, the psalmist writes, all the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name for you do great and marvelous deeds. You alone are God. That passage just reminds me that all nations will understand at the end that God has done right, that God has been perfect, that God has been holy. No one will bring any claim against God that sticks. No accusation will be found. And because of that, God will be glorified by all. God is in control. And God will be feared and God will be glorified. Revelation 19, Re salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The things that we seek in life, to be saved from our errors, to be saved from the desperation of this world, to have some sense of meaning and purpose and value in this world, and to have control over what's taking place, salvation, glory, and power, they don't reside in us, they reside in God. They reside in the work of Jesus Christ. They're made available to us. He is leasing them to us through Jesus each and every moment of our lives. And then lastly, God is holy in all of his actions. This is where the judgment of God is accurate. That's why it brings me pleasure to say it one more time, that the judgment of God comes from the goodness of his character, not from his anger, not from just needing to go off on us, but actually he has patiently shown us the poison we are ingesting and what it's doing to our lives and those around us. And he is begging us and giving us alternatives. He's showing us that our satisfaction doesn't have to be in the selfish feelings of this world. It can be in loving and serving and caring for others. And he's offering us, and those of us who reject that will die from the poison we've ingested instead of being freed by the power of Christ. Chapter 16, verses five through seven. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The altar is interesting because that's where you stand before and bring your sin before the Father to be forgiven. And in the midst of all of this, it says, no, that they have done what you are holding them to. Remember, God punishes sin and judges those who are loyal to sin. He punishes deception and he judges those who are loyal to deception. And it says here that saints and prophets, you have given them blood to drink because they have shed the blood. We have done the crime, we deserve the punishment. And Isaiah 26 verse nine is a powerful passage I discovered recently. I know I've read it before, but it didn't hit me till now. When your judgments come upon the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. This just reaffirms that the judgment of God is not only true, but it comes from his character. And nobody will stand before God on the day of judgment and argue. Every single person will realize his, his verdict is true. This is what I did. This is who I am. 
So the world cries out right now, where is the love of God in all of this? How can a God of love punish, send people to eternal damnation? How can he do this? Because we have arrogantly dismissed his long-suffering patience. We have taken advantage of him. We, we have concluded that we are more worthy than we are, and then we stand before him. Where is the love of God? Read the revelation and see how patient and long-suffering God has been from the very beginning so that no one would perish, so that no one would lose eternal life with him. No one would lose that relationship. So we don't sit in judgment on the judgment of God. And secondly, we need to approach the judgment of God humbly. This is for a believer and unbeliever alike this morning. You must understand that God's justice should send all of us away for punishment, but he doesn't. So don't approach that judgment as if you've earned it. Don't approach that mercy as if you've earned it. Stand before him humbly, accepting. Listen to what the story of scripture says. You and I, we have denounced the sovereignty of God. We have put God on judgment. We've asserted our independence. We've turned away from God's wisdom. We've asserted, our, uh, asserted rather our own authority to say that is my life, I do what I want. I treat people the way I want and I, I take whatever I want. We've offered allegiance to gods that are not real. We have served and worshiped money, possession, success, sex, self-centered lives. We've disregarded the appropriate fear of God. And we've done all of this in the name of our independent freedom. In fact, if you see the bowls as the, the plagues on Egypt, then we should see each of our lives as Pharaoh's life. God has come before us and offered us a chance to repent and change. And we have measured what we would lose. We have measured the loss of our power and our authority and our control. And we've often said to God, no. And Pharaoh refused to repent. And the moment he repented, soon after that, he went chasing after him again. He could not give up the gods he was truly worshiping, even when confronted with the real God. And over and over, you'll see the sad message in Revelation 16 is how people responded. Look at verse 9 with me. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 21. They cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Notice that the power of God, like before Pharaoh, is being displayed, and instead they curse God, they ignore God, and they reject God even further. They spiral away due to a lack of repentance. And repentance is not just changing your behavior. Repentance is actually receiving the gracious gift of forgiveness and mercy. It is not only giving up something, it is accepting something in return. So to repent is to turn away from the actions in rebellion toward God and not just being neutral, but actually stepping into his mercy and grace and not only being a recipient, but being one who shares that too. If this seems all foreign to you, I want to take you to Romans chapter 2 and I'm going to show you something the Apostle Paul told a church like ours. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Hold a high view of God, don't judge God. And humbly understand that his patience and love towards you was to lead you to a repentance that brings life, not a rebellion that brings death. 
And when I compare what God has done for me and what I've done for God, I know who deserves to be worshiped. And I know who deserves to be judged. Last thing I wanna encourage you to do is the whole theme over and over and over, you see us landing on this point each and every time we take a theme from the revelation and we apply it to our lives. Hold on to nothing except the hope of the gospel. To a message given to people to hold on when times are tough, to hold on when the world looks down on us for being believers and holding to truth, it's gonna be tougher and tougher and tougher in this cancel culture for you and I to be applauded for being believer. I hope you understand that standing up for Christ will cost you something. Prepare your heart, prepare your mind, hold on to the gospel because here's the story we reviewed last week. God sent a lion into this world to reclaim the throne here on earth and that lion became a lamb that was slain for us so that his blood would permit us to be cleansed of our sin and enter into the new kingdom. Not one day, but this day. To walk with him, to trust him, to hold on to him. It's the hope of the gospel that God's justice will be enacted, that those who receive Jesus as their salvation will have their justice met by God. God did not send Jesus as punishment. He didn't beat up Jesus because he couldn't beat up us. God himself, Jesus went to the cross to die for us, a self-sacrifice so that the blood of Christ would cleanse us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it's, it's expressed this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the story. God came to rescue and those who will not be rescued by the character of God will be judged by the standards they have set for themselves. And yet my scriptures also tell me sad news is that the wrath of God is my fault and he is right to hold me accountable. And if I stand before God on my own merits, the scriptures say that my righteousness is nothing but filthy rags, nothing to justify my life or to redeem it. Now look with me at chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So several of us earlier this summer sat down and had a conversation and then we followed it up with one in the fall and, and Shane Wood joined us at that particular conversation and, and we were going through and he said, I think you could do chapters 15 and 16 together. And then he said, do these chapters together. He said, but there's something really cool. And he was, just, he was just spitting out all these ideas and he goes, and you need to look up the theology of nakedness. And my first thought was, nope, that's not going in my search engine, uh-uh. I, only God knows what would show up with that thing, but I got his point. And we began to look at this and there is a theology of nakedness shown here throughout scripture. You might notice that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, What's the first feeling they had? Shame. So they hid themselves, right? Because they were what? They were naked. They'd always been naked, but now they understood their nakedness and they hid themselves. And God took the skin of an animal. An animal was sacrificed to once again protect mankind in their sin. And they were given a skin covering to cover themselves. And what's interesting is as you go through the scriptures, you begin to see that God takes off that filthy covering and he gives us a white robe. That white robe imagery is possible. And at the end of this chapter in the revelation, something significant happens. We are told Jesus is returning. God's character is on display. And when he returns, don't be naked. Don't be covered in the shame of your sin. Don't be exposed. Have on the garment. 
Now, you know that if you found out that there was a break-ins in your neighborhood and that they were coming back tonight, would you just simply go crawl in bed naked in the middle of the night, shut the lights off and go, eh, I'm not gonna worry about it. No, you'd have your fighting gear on. You'd be dressed ready to rumble, right? You wouldn't just blow, I know you're all giggling. He said naked. Don't picture that, picture the other thing. Right, what we're actually talking about is would you be ready? Jesus said, I'm gonna come and you're not gonna know, but you can prepare yourself, be covered in holiness, pursue the things of God, understand that the judgment of God is coming. His word can be trusted even when we don't like it. And so for those of us covered in the blood, I want you to sit here today. I want you to find peace, comfort, protection. I want you to be able to worship Jesus because of what he did, you and I are covered with a white robe. It says his white robe is blood stained in the revelation, but ours is pure and clean and white. And we've been covered in his holiness. Don't throw that off. Don't give that away. Wear that with love and value and appreciation. Live a life of gratitude. But here's where it's easy to stop. Isn't it a blessing to be covered in the blood of Jesus Christ? Yes, but I wanna flip your attention to something else. Every single one of us knows someone who's not. And we're not better than them. We're not more valuable than them. We're not more righteous than them. We have no more value than they have at all, except we accepted the mercy and love of Jesus Christ, the patient, long-suffering gift of God. How many of the people that we know who don't have the assurance we have in Christ? It's not because they're bad people. It's not because they don't want this. It's they don't understand our God. You see, if the judgment of God comes from his character, we can bring people to the character of our God and introduce them to someone they'll want to know, someone they'll want to have a relationship with. Instead of the God of wrath, we introduce them to the long-suffering, patient love of God. And also we can tell them that patience will not last forever. Take this serious. Dress yourself in the robes of his righteousness so that when he returns, we've been marked with the blood of the lamb. We are the sons and daughters of the king and his kingdom will be open and we will continue to celebrate the goodness of God. What I'd love for all of us to do right now is to just spend a few moments of silence on these two thoughts. Thank your father if you've been washed in the blood and think about those you know who are not who simply need to hear of the love of God for them, their value in his eyes, the mercy that Jesus Christ showed. Spend a moment asking God, who might I share the story of the slain lamb so that the judgment of God will be about what you bring into the kingdom, not about being left out of the kingdom. Let's talk to our father about that. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.